0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 302, air date May 29th, 2018.
1: Uh, we have Dr. Shiva, who is a US Senate candidate in Massachusetts. How are you doing, Dr. Shiva?
0: I'm doing good. How, how do I address you, JP or, uh, or JF or?
1: People call me JF very often in the U.S. Okay. Alright, so uh, I'd like you to take uh, us through your story so so that the audience who doesn't know you uh, understand what you've done. Your CV is just amazing. You've been in all sorts of adventures. It's really fascinating to read about your life. Uh, You've delved into stuff that that range from mathematics to computer programming to studying with uh, Noam Chomsky and to In fact, right now, being a U.S. Senate candidate, uh, can you take us through the story of your life and how you got there?
0: Sure, uh, Jeff. So, you know, my journey um, is an interesting one. And it's not that different than probably uh, the journey of most people. Uh, I think what's interesting for me is I went through sort of three major aspects of my journey. One is the aspect of immigration than education and what I call innovation. You know, um, J.F., I grew up in India, and in India, which many Indians don't even get to experience because I I experience uh, the India of two parts of India. You know, India is a land, uh, a world within world. So I grew up, I was born in Bombay, which is now called Mumbai, India, uh, a a city that is, you know, uh, if New York is a um, melting pot, Bombay is an industrial furnace. You know, so I grew up with all different kinds of religions, all different kinds of people, all different languages. But I also grew up in a very small village also in India, probably about one third of my life because my grandparents were poor village farmers. In fact, my uh, uh, grandparents worked, pro- uh, my grandmother worked 16, 17 hours in the field, um, growing cotton and rice in small subsistence farms. But on the weekends, JF, she was a um, healer, she had learned traditional systems of Indian medicine. We're not talking about biology. We're not talking about molecular biology, but um, before Western medicine existed, there were other systems of medicine. So on a weekend or a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, 30, 40 people would be lined up outside my grandmother's home. And she had the ability to diagnose people's ailments by observing their face very carefully. And then she would come up with different formulations of herbs or yoga or uh, meditations to help Heal them so it was a personalized medical system so as a kid i was fascinated how this woman with no degrees was able to empirically heal people but also you know i grew up in an india which had a caste system you know the caste system is fundamentally has nothing to do with what you do but where you're born in society so you know as a child i experienced some of the inequities of that so i was very moved to understand political systems why there was injustice but also medical systems. so basically politics and medicine um my family moved to the united states in 1970 in those days uh, you know you had to uh as a part of the legal immigration process you, my mom and dad had to submit all their resumes their reference letters both of them were very unique people at a time when none of them should ever have gotten educated they did because of their very unique and qualities and we came here in 1970, we went through the public school systems of New Jersey. I settled in Patterson, New Jersey, which is one of the poorest cities in New Jersey. And every year and a half, my parents would move to the better school systems because that's the way um, you know, my parents felt that you could liberate yourself. So by the time I went to Patterson, then Clifton and Persephone and Livingston, each one of those school systems had higher property taxes. Um, by the time I was 14, because of my uh, intensity and in wanting to achieve and how much I valued the educational system, not only was I good at athletics, but I had finished calculus uh, uh, by the ninth grade and got the opportunity to go to New York University, JF at a time when computers were just starting to come. Uh, it was an intensive uh, program where I learned seven computer languages and uh, graduated top of the class it was an intensive, almost a military type program where, 40 high school students were selected. After that, believe it or not, I got a full time job working as a software engineer at a small medical school in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, which is predominantly African-American. And I met a great mentor, a physicist, um, but I was still doing high school. But he gave me a a huge opportunity to uh, invent what we know now as email in those days in many organizations in this medical school every, there was a secretary in every office the secretary at a desktop inbox outbox folders you may remember this and they used to write a thing called a memo uh to from subject the carbon copy put it in, a, in an envelope and send it around the office this is how you hired people this is how you collaborated uh, separate from the telephone and i was asked to convert that entire system into the electronic version. I called that system email. Not only did I call it email, but I invented email, as we know today, wrote the 50,000 lines of code. In fact, when I came to MIT in 1981, the president of MIT is the one who alerted me that I should copyright it because the federal government did not recognize patents, but in 1980, you could copyright software. So on August 30th, 1982, uh, as an 18-year-old kid, I was issued the first United States patent for uh, copyright for email officially recognizing Museum inventor of email. So that was my journey through the process of education. Went to MIT, always deeply interested, I said, in politics and medicine. In and out of MIT did uh, degrees in electrical engineering, um, uh, deeply interested in medicine, but v- was very, very upset at the way Western medicine looked at the body, JF, because it looked at it in a reductionist way as parts not as a whole, so my focus became engineering, electrical engineering, did my master's in mechanical engineering, did another master's in design, and then um, later on did my PhD in biological engineering, but that spanned over 30 years, believe it or not, in and out of MIT, started seven different companies, made a lot of money, Um, but in 2003, when I came back to MIT, something interesting was taking place, because of my love of computing and medicine, a new field emerged, which you may know of as a biologist called systems biology and the idea was um western medicine was recognizing that uh it had some major flaws right it thought it was looking at the world of biology as parts um and the idea was we're not our genes we're not you know a hundred thousand genes in fact we only have twenty thousand genes the same as a worm so what really makes a human potentially different than a worm is how molecular pathways work so i came back to mit in 2003 um, and uh, uh, did my PhD in creating a whole new technology for mathematically, mechanistically modeling any kind of disease, in fact, the human cell also. And I called that new invention Cytosol. So if email was the electronic version of the inner office communication system in electronic form, Cytosol was the electronic version of the molecular communication system. So that was my journey through innovation. Uh, interesting enough, JF. Uh, what's fascinating is in 2011, when my dear mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis in a suitcase, this is now 30 years, 35 years later, she had saved all of those documents and artifacts from 1978 when I invented the first email system. Time magazine looked at all of these artifacts and they wrote an article called A Man Who Invented Email. Uh, three months later, all of these materials uh, were requested by the Smithsonian which I donated to them and uh, and, and what's fascinating is what occurs after that um, and and uh, is that after it went into the Smithsonian a number of uh, 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 Washington Post wrote, wrote a great article saying Shiva Ayodre honored Aziz email. and after that the liberal elite in, intelligentsia who during those 35 years of the military-industrial complex had basically created a bogus history that they had created email when all they did was simple text messaging, got very, very angry when it went into the Smithsonian. It was like a new skull was found in Africa, which reset human evolution. So uh, they started uh, unleashing attacks, um, saying that there's no way this 14-year-old kid could have invented email, for that matter, in Newark, New Jersey. Because you see, the narrative is all great innovations must come from Silicon Valley or MIT. And in fact, I was on the front page of MIT for inventing many other things. But the notion that email could have been invented by a 14-year-old boy, an Indian-American boy, uh, in Newark, New Jersey throws a wrench into all of that. And But the fact is that innovation occurs anytime, anyplace, any place, by anybody. You don't have to go to MIT. In fact, MIT was frankly very, uh, it was their benefit that they got me. In retrospect, I was already a trained software engineer. And that's what you start realizing. You start realizing that these big institutions have written big lies that as though they are the hegemony of innovation and creativity, when in fact, uh, most of this gets done by people. Innovation is basically solving a problem. I was trying to help a secretary go from the typewriter to the keyboard, not, you know, simply send little telegraph messages. And that's what email is. But it brings a larger thing. That's why politics is so fascinating for me, um, is that we have a neo-caste system in America right now. Uh, And that caste system is run, the epicenter of that, I believe, is the academic institutions like Harvard, um, uh, who believe that they are the only ones who are intelligent. And they are so, so insecure about who they are, that they are the uh, really the f- a fake news behind the fake news, in my opinion. So if you think about it, these academics get together. It's pay to play science right now. Right. A lot of people so don't interested. know about this. Um, they write whatever narratives they want. And then the stupid journalism journalists essentially do citations off what they write. And then uh, Wikipedia, which is nothing about truth, essentially copies and cites what the journal say. So the good news is, you know, they have. A, a, I'm a formidable opponent because I know how this works. I have, you know, all their uh, degrees, so they don't really know what to do with me. So it's a lot of fun uh, because, uh, you know, I still continue to innovate. The new company I've done is Cytosolve, where we're modeling large-scale pathways. We've sp- spun off seven different companies. We're going after all the major diseases in a very different way. So um, it's a lot of fun for me because I think... The, the history, it has always been to bucket people, right? The mad scientist, right? Or the crazy artist. But when you really look at it, ultimately, people who create are always solving a problem. It's not about uh, being in any one of these kooky worlds. So uh, so I feel very fortunate to be able to run. And my, my goal is to inspire people to stand up on their own two feet and recognize that the notion of a lawyer or lobbyist, I mean, I mean, what is law? I mean, it's really not a big profession when you really think about it. It doesn't take that much brains to become a lawyer. Um, So we have a situation now that we do not value engineering. We don't value plumbers. We don't value electricians because the elite have diminished those because they are the probably the most, in my view, them and next to Hollywood are the most insecure people and they diminish everyone else and they falsely raise themselves up as though they are the ones we're the architects of society, and they're the ones who are the smart ones. So we w- we want to completely destroy that because I don't believe my parents uh, left India, the caste system of India, to come to a neocaste system. So I think it's a great, great opportunity to destroy all of that. Awesome.
1: Martianus sends us a message. He says, claiming email as one of their inventions, red pilled based Shiva about them. And, uh, th- the story you tell about, uh, about people not being able to conceive of a 14 or 15 year old programming something and, and creating something so great is the same I've been confronted to. When I was in high school, I made a Texas instrument, uh, program that was giving all sorts of answers to the, the current questions that could happen at the exam. So much so that it spread and that now everyone in my high school still has this program because it literally does all of the calculus for you. It gives you the answer, but not the path to the answer. And uh, many professors have told uh, my brothers, my younger brothers who came to the same school, that they didn't believe JF could have done it himself. He must have had help from an adult. But I didn't. Now, on the question of uh, your invention of email, I think there is some controversy, but I think there's not a fundamental questioning of the fact that you did something innovative that has participated to the progression of what became email. However, we should point out, there was such a thing as text message being sent with some headers like to and from before you came in. And as a high school student, you've, you've made a system that made email advanced toward what it became, right?
0: Yeah, well, well look it. Um, to and from is not what we're talking about. In fact, they didn't even call it email. Uh, to and from goes all the way back to the Morse code. All right? We're talking about the system. In fact, um, you know, when they started attacking me in 2012, one of my students found an article, in fact, a 1977 report written by a guy called David Crocker, who's frankly crock of BS, he was attacking me. And, you know, this is the way they like to attack you. Oh, you did not something nice as a 14-year-old. But, you know, nothing could have been created without collaboration. Well, in his 1977, December 1977 report, this guy Crocker writes, at this point, no attempt is being made to create an electronic version of the office mail system. Email is the electronic version of a system. Simply sending text messages is not email. That would make Samuel Morris... The inventor of email in fact they didn't call it email they called it electronic messaging i'm not the inventor of electronic messaging i am the inventor of email the system as we know it today inbox outbox folders that entire when you log into your email system today you don't just do text messaging right that would uh we call facebook something very different than what we call twitter we're talking about email the system um that is what i created they had Look, these guys thought that the secretary was stupid. The reason that Crocker wrote that was because they th- they were these little nerds who were just trying to pass electronic messages between two computers. In fact, that was done in Radio Type in 1939. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the entire system. Inbox, outbox, folders, registered mail, you know, BCC, CC, that's email. And I, and I got wonder, the first copyright for it. And I called it email.
1: Does your contribution include the server side of email? What gathers these emails and center places yeah, and everything?
0: And, and all of it. It was client server. It was not a simple system. It was 50,000 lines of f- complete enterprise code. In fact, we did it in a relational database at the time. OK, hierarchical relational database. One of. The, in fact, we did things that now Google wants to do. An email message was only stored once. We never transported the entire message. So when I sent you an email, it was stored once. You got access to that entire message and it was a remote procedure call. It was way advanced. Look, a 14 year old kid invented TV in Franklin, Idaho. The heart of this issue is these guys, the BMIT's it's a military industrial complex, has all these big guys thinking like only they can invent something. It's the biggest bullshit. The ARPANET guys have done so much effort into hype. There's a great article written by Michael Podlipsky, who wrote the RFCs, and it's a great essay call, and they argued all night how BBN and the ARPANET guys would come together to claim credit for all this bullshit that they never did. They're the biggest hype artists. They didn't invent email. They never even thought email was possible. In fact, David Crocker's letter or, or document in December 1996 1977 says it's almost impossible to create the electronic version of the interoffice mail system because you would have to satisfy all these users' needs. Remember, these guys were guys in white coats with huge mainframes, writing cryptic language. The notion of a secretary who was always a woman having access to the computer was inconceivable. So when I say I invented email, you know, look, I never wanted credit for this. But when they said a curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged, when they did, when they started attacking me in 2011, when I merely put it in the Smithsonian, you know, at this point, I am the inventor of email. And you want I will not only defend it, but I will go on the offensive on it because it's not about me. It's about the truth that innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. And the bigger issue is this, JF, look. Uh, The brainwashing that has occurred in America is the following, that we fund war, and everyone should listen to this, and of all of that, we should be so happy that we get inventions. And if you really dig deep into this, what you find is that wartime innovations have nothing to do with civilian innovations. In fact, it's a secondary market. Let me give you an example. In medicine, if you look at modern medicine, it has nothing to do with healing people or prevention. Uh, when Florence Nightingale was looking at the Crimean War and she was seeing soldiers dying on the field, she did one of the first statistical analysis. She wasn't just a nurse, which she showed that soldiers weren't dying on the field because of being shot, but when they came into the hospital, all right? So she created the modern healthcare system, hygiene. She had this vision that one day doctors would do clinical research. That created the modern healthcare system, but you gotta understand the goal of that system Was to put the soldier back on the field. It was crisis management. Then, you know, many years later, they started applying that system for what we today call healthcare. It has nothing to do with prevention. So, what this is what wartime systems do they create something for war, then they try to come around and try to resell it for civilian use. Monsanto and Dow created the ability to drop you know, herbicides from air. Well, when the military ended, what do they do? They try to reuse that for factory farming. Another example, the Haber process, which was done for fixation of nitrogen. Well, that was actually done for TNT. Well, when weapon sales were going down, they tried to tell us that we needed fertilizer. You see, the problem they have with email is it wasn't invented by them. And the inventor of it is still alive. And it was not a military innovation. Email was a civilian innovation. So this busts up all their lies that you have to fund war to get something civilian. You see I've what heard I'm saying? a lot of
1: memes along these lines. I've heard that the chocolate bar was invented for uh, military people. The American people has been deceived for Be decades deceived. now Bell, into her,
0: war. Exactly. The bottom line, and this is why Eisenhower said, beware of the military-industrial-academic complex. A Republican president, when he was leaving office, he waited until the last day so he wouldn't get shot. Right. Then you had Fulbright, who was a Democrat. You know, I was one of a, one of the Fulbright scholars and Fulbright said the military industrial academic complex. That's why the story and the truth about email is so viciously attacked by the white liberal racist left, because they are the ones who claim they want to help darkies like me get off the plantation. So, you see, when I was at MIT, I was on the front page of Technology Review when I invented Echo Mail when I was at MIT. Front page when I won the Fulbright Award, front page when I first came to MIT. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, that destroys their narrative. Uh, and I was part of their good Indian, right? Inclusivity and diversity. But when I said email was done before I came to MIT, I'm no longer a good Indian. You see, because the discriminatory narrative is Indians shake their head like this. They're peaceful, you know, good Gandhians. They don't like me because I'm unwilling to be a good Indian. And that's what the truth is. So it's not like they did to and from headers. That's not email. I'm sorry. Email is the system. And that was invented by a 14 year old Indian American kid in Newark, New Jersey, period.
1: The, I lived the same thing when I was in academia. Oh, then there was some uh, some something about me that interested the media personalities and I was getting into mainstream media and a lot of contacts in the media world. They literally stopped talking to me the day I wasn't serving their leftist exactly. interest anymore.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the issue is, um, you know, uh, someone... You know, I don't know if you know, the uh, we, if, you, if people look at my tweet several, about six months ago, someone, uh, I don't know if you know, among the anti-establishment young people, they have this thing called Pepe the Frog. OK, the left calls it, you know, uh, some racist thing. Yeah, whatever. So one one guy sent me a version of the frog, a brown frog called Groyper. And I said, "Wow, well, it's pretty good artwork." You know, one of my degrees in design, art and design. I do a lot of graphic design. Um, so I took the frog and put Shiva for Senate, a circular thing below it. I said no to Monsanto. Why? Because a frog is a bellwether of nature. Uh-huh. Well, when I put that up, it went viral. So the so-called left liberals attacked me as a racist. Think about that, a guy who's experienced racism, a bunch of white liberal racists calling me a racist. So we got the pins in recently, and we I put it out, went viral on the internet, and a uh, complete moron called Gerald Holt, uh, oh again, God. calls me a racist. He's also so anyway. been
1: targeting me a lot.
0: Yeah, so I tweeted out, you know, and he was questioning my degrees. As I mean, here's a guy who probably studied homosexual studies or journalism or, uh, you know, bathroom studies, by the way, which I put on the same level. Um, and so I said, where is his degrees from? Uh, what degree does he have to even question my credibility? And that went viral. And someone uh, called me uh, a Okay, and I'm going to use that word. Let me tell you why I think he said this guy's is a. Now, so I tweeted back, we're all on the uh, white liberal deep state reservation. And the reason you see what the white liberals have done is they have drawn a very nice bounded box of what is racism. So if you use a. Or if you change the name. So if you don't use that word and if you change the name of things, suddenly you've solved racism. You see what I'm saying? And the truth is we're on the white liberal deep state reservation. And that word we should all embrace and use. And this is why I think we should embrace it, because it goes at the true heart of racism. Racism is not ceremonial things of stopping using words, changing names. It's addressing the fundamental economic issues which is we're all on a plantation of white liberalism, neoliberalism, and the epicenter of that is Harvard University, which is a $40 billion hedge fund, which is where Elizabeth Warren resides, which is where all the Republicans and Democrats come out of. So we're at a very important point, and I think our campaign is, you know we haven't even begun, scratched the surface of what racism is. There's racism against poor white people. There's racism against poor blacks. Racism of what we've done to the Native Americans who still live on reservations. And that notion of racism is never discussed because a white liberal racist define it in two checkboxes. So they're the biggest racist, you know, we
1: specify for the authorities monitoring us uh, both in Canada and at YouTube, the the N word was used there as a descriptive way to talk of his experience. So Dr. Shiva is talking of his experience and his message is anti-racist in nature.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, if anything, people can uh, my entire life has been fighting racism. You know, I was brought at, brought up as a, uh, you know, a dark skin, low caste Indian where we were called all sorts of names growing up in India. And, you know, when I came to MIT, my friends were poor blacks, poor whites and poor Hispanics. The Indians at MIT from India would always try to ask my last name because they were the biggest racists. So I made sure more poor blacks got into MIT, more poor whites. I ran some of the biggest demonstrations. There's a picture of me burning the South African flag. If people want to go to ShebaForSenate.com and look at the timeline against the white liberal racists of MIT who were investing at that time in apartheid South Africa. So you're looking at someone who's fought racism all my life. And the fact that the nation, the fact like an idiot like Jared Holt, the fact that that anyone would call me a racist, you know, they're gonna get probably a big lawsuit, including the Southern Poverty Law Center, which went to the extent of calling me a Nazi and a white supremacist when we face 40,000 people who are incited by them and Mayor Marty Walsh as though we were Nazis. So what we have is they have a huge problem with me because you're looking at a, a person who's fought racism, fought for poor people, fought for poor whites, who's gonna expose them all. So and I will note that
1: want- uh, Dr. Shiva has been historically winning settlements in court uh, or or be- before a trial even happens. I believe there was one story involving Gawker and Hulk Hogan.
0: Yeah, so, so remember I told you in 2012 when my stuff went into the Smithsonian, Um, uh, Gawker Media, which is really not even, I don't know what they are, they're a clickbaiting firm, like most of these journalists are. They would write garbage headlines just to get clickbaiting, claiming that they're journalists. Well, they called me all sorts of names, A-S-S-H-O-L-E, you know, uh, which led to other people saying this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged. Um, For four years, I couldn't find any lawyer to take the story. They said, oh, ha ha, you invented email, right? Al Gore story. Finally, Charles Harder, who had just won a major settlement for Hulk Hogan. uh, Charles looked at my stuff and he goes, clearly you invented email. The facts are so obvious when anyone looks at it. And so we sued Gawker. I was the second person to sue for 35 million. And what was interesting was Gawker folded uh, after my lawsuit. And the irony is that I was appointed the co-chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gawker to Univision. So it's great karma. And I got a close to a million dollar settlement and we put Gawker out of business. Now, some of these so-called quote unquote journalists, again, who probably got bachelor's degrees in bathroom studies, started attacking me as someone against the First Amendment. The First Amendment is does not support untruthful speech, right, we're talking about true free speech. And that's what I stand for, free speech, but truthful free speech. So that was a big win for us. More recently, you know, we have a sign on our bus which says only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. I
1: want to go through this. This is the the statement of your campaign. Defeat hashtag fake Indian Elizabeth Warren. So for our audience who don't understand the reference, can you explain this story?
0: Yeah, so so this is uh, essentially how most academics are. You, You talk about, look, I've been out in Hollywood. I've been in academia. Academics and all of you academics listening to me. So hopefully this is your way to redeem yourself, uh, are the most insecure people you will find. Why? Because their future is really based on following a very meticulous path of pleasing everyone, okay? I, I can talk more about that the tenure process, but Elizabeth Warren, when she applied to Harvard, she said that she was a Native American. Uh, for those of you who, who may know American history, the uh, the struggle of the 1960s was to ensure that minorities got a fair chance. One of the gains of that was affirmative action, sometimes uh, what I think was a Band-Aid, but nonetheless, it was a gain of those movements, which was to let equalize this disparity. So it was meant for minorities to get access to higher education, faculty, et cetera. Elizabeth Warren lied on her application, said she was a Native American, and that was fundamentally the basis of how she got into Harvard, her job. And by the way, that was around 1995, around 1990, up until 1995, Elizabeth Warren registered as a Republican after she came into Cambridge, changed her thing to become a Democrat, because that's what you got to do. You got to be part of the Democrat club. At least you have to have that liberal face here. And she got her job at Harvard. Her professorship, by the way, was the chair called the Leo Gottlieb chair from the Cleary Gottlieb Law Firm, which is the same law firm which has direct connections to supporting some of the things with Madoff. Longer story. But anyway, Elizabeth Warren got her job at Harvard by lying uh, that she was a Indian. So when I started my campaign in February of 2017, last year, we had a bunch of amazing students and local citizens who built a beautiful school bus to be our campaign bus. And the initial sign on the side of the bus was Shiva for Senate, be the light. Two months later, in June 2017, JF, we changed the signage to be Shiva for Senate, fight for America. Again, by the way, this bus was used, parked in my parking lot, in my building that I own, with my hard earned money that we bought, and I pay almost $70,000 a year just in property tax. March of this year, 2018, before the St. Patrick's Day Parade, we changed the the slogan to, only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian uh, Two juxtaposed pictures, a picture of me and a picture of Warren in her headdress. People love this, JF. We took it to the St. Patrick's Day Parade. About one to two million people saw it. You guys can see the video. People are cheering us on. Well, five to, five to 10 days later, we get a letter from the city of Cambridge. By the way, city of Cambridge supposed to be the most liberal intellectual elite, inclusive and diverse to all different thoughts, supposedly. Says that they've gotten anonymous complaints and that I was going to be fined $300 a day. Well, for having a truck? For having a truck with the signage which said only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. Now you got to understand, the fine comes from the building inspector of Cambridge, who, by the way, turns out he's an Indian. Okay, we'll get to this an Indian from India. Okay, so they have the house Indian try to rein in the field Indian. Okay or Malcolm okay. X would have said the house slave bringing in the field slave. Um, it's a very interesting dynamic, right? So we looked at this and we said, wait a minute, the signage is not on my building. You're the building inspector. You have no right to rule on this. So we, on April 22nd, sued the city in federal court for violation of the First Amendment. And uh, we we sued them, not only in violation of the US Constitution, but also the Massachusetts Constitution. Uh, on May 4th, we escalated that lawsuit uh, to the federal courts uh, saying that we were also going to sue them and ask for a preliminary injunction so they couldn't get one penny out of us during the lawsuit. Well, when we were about to do that, the city said, no, 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 don't do this. And the reason they're afraid, JF, is because if we do that, and w- which we definitely win that within weeks, that it makes them look really stupid. But more importantly, our lawsuit would have become more interrogatories, more uh, you know, a jury trial, potentially. Right. And would have started getting information about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. How was she? Gonna, and they don't want any of this. So they wanted to call a negotiation. And they said, oh, can Dr. Shiva come in and meet with this other Indian guy? You see, this is the old plantation technique, right? <laughs> <laughs> it so, really is.
1: So they send so, you the guy who was the inspector and who was Indian to kind of negotiate with you. It's like uh, right. their well, we, agent. Yeah, we
0: said, we said no way. In fact, one of my campaign strategists said this is the old house, you know, and t- want to talking to the field then, you know, and he was much more explicit about it because he's also uh, a dark skinned Indian guy who suffered all sorts of racism by the white liberals. So we said no way. We said you have. In fact, here was our response to them. You have 48 hours to rescind the order or we're going to go to the preliminary injunction. So they caved in and then we started negotiating surrender terms and we negotiated with them three surrender terms one that they would never ever fine us again for this or any other sign number two that they would drop the existing fines and number three that they would never do this to any other vehicle that first amendment was not only on buildings on vehicles which was by the way of blurry law they agreed to all of this and then based on that uh jf we you know by law we have to dismiss our lawsuit right because we're the plaintiffs so we filed our dismissal and in my declaration i said this is why Now, what's interesting is one newspaper got it right, Washington Times, but the AP, which is a complete lackey to the bourgeois media. Right. And the establishment said Shiva Idre drops his lawsuit. Right. As though we had retracted back. Very clever. So um, also after we dismissed the lawsuit, then the city said, oh, we never agreed to these terms and wanted the judge to stop my declaration. Well, the judge dismissed it anyway, so they lost again. So the point is, they do not want to give credit when the house slave leaves the plantation. You see what I'm saying? Instead, they (laughs) always, I'm I'm being serious, this is a very important technique, how the white liberal racists try to keep people back on the reservation or their plantation. People need, whether you're white, whether you're black, you're red, or you're yellow, it's a racist model to keep us on the plantation. So I wanna expand this term of racism beyond the white liberal thing of black and white. Racism is practice. it's economic segregation of people of all color. I mean, white people in this country have been destroyed. If you look at the amount of uh, the destruction that's taken on to poor whites, Poor whites in this country t- today suffer the most worst infant mortality. They're the ones who are doped up, you know, eat all sorts of pesticide-ridden foods, and the a- the average net worth, by the way, of a black person in Boston, net worth is eight dollars. So what has Elizabeth Warren done? What has Marty Walsh done? What is, you know all these so-called, and they're all, by the way, uh, Charlie Baker, all from Harvard, Mitt Romney, right? So they've created massive economic segregation for poor whites and poor blacks, and that's racism. They don't want to talk about that. They want to govern racism. Don't use the N-word, right? Change the name of this building to this. Now you've absolved racism. They're complete hypocrites.
1: One of the first targets of the liberal system that you describe as a plantation, it's it's a great metaphor.
0: Uh are white people. We should, right? word, we should use the word reservation and plantation because that's what they do. We live in a, you know, everything we do is watch now. Facebook, right? Think about it, Google. We live on a white, liberal, racist plantation and reservation, physical and and mental.
1: One of the first targets of this system are white people uh, who are being denigrated in the media, who for liberals are an absolute uh, target for reducing their birth rate, for attacking them, for judging them racially, for for assuming that they are privileged, when in fact most white people in the US, I assume, are of lower class. And so they get targeted and white people are the first uh, victims of racism. From this leftist liberal gang.
0: Yeah, exactly. What they have done is they perpetrate race war, right? And what they want to do is they want the poor black and the poor white to fight. So the Democratic Party takes advantage of the poor black and the Republican Party and the right wing takes again advantage of the poor white. So I can tell you right here, the Boston Globe, um, which is the left liberal newspaper, interesting enough, when they published the three candidates running against Warren, they left my picture out, literally left it out, even though I was the first candidate to announce the most popular candidate. I tweeted out racist uh, Boston Globe leaves out the darkie. It went viral on the Internet. The editor of the Globe said, Shiva, why are you calling me a racist? I said, look, you put the three white guys. You left the black guy out, dark guy out. What do you want me to say? So the, the left liberals and the, the left wing of the Democrats takes advantage of the poor blacks. The right wing and people like local radio show hosts, you know, they act like they're Trumpers and so on, but they're actually take advantage of poor whites. The ultimate goal, they breed racism. They want the poor white to think that the poor black's the enemy, and they want the poor black to think the poor white is a redneck. This is how they operate. And that's how they keep people in check while the bourgeoisie, the establishment, Lot of them, one degree of separation out of Harvard, which is probably the most racist institution on the planet, which again I keep repeating is a forty billion dollar hedge fund. And frankly, a fake university operates all of this. And we uh, have and the opportunity we have, JF, is the epicenter of that is, you know, I can see Harvard right right from where home is, right? It's down the street here, right? Okay, and so you live I, close to Harvard? Yeah, I mean our our office is in Cambridge. We're behind it's like, you know, I feel like Luke Skywalker, you know, going right into the Death Star. And that's what the opportunity with this election is by an independent, by a real American and also a real Indian winning. We blow away their narrative that you have to be in this two parties, that you cannot build a movement independent of them and win. And to everyone listening, that's what the opportunity is. My running. Look, I don't have to do this. I have a multi-billion-dollar biotech company, which is doing really well that I can run. But I hate these guys. These guys are the people, the same people that pollute India and oppress people in India are the same people that oppress people right here in the inner cities of this country. It's the establishment is one. They profit from war and sickness and war and sickness profits the Democrats, Republicans, and Democrats. And we have a huge opportunity to bust that up with this election.
1: Now You mentioned Harvard being a, a racist institution, and I largely agree. Uh, one of the things with Harvard and with the mainstream media and all of the system that you describe is, and even in fact, some of the journalists that you've named, a lot of them are Jews. Uh, Is that something that you've realized is that, do you realize that there is an ethnocentric behavior from Jews in your nation?
0: Well, here's an interesting thing. Look, um, if someone went and this is an interesting thing, people always do this analysis, right? of cultural backgrounds on discrimination, right? I mean, people should literally look at the Harvard faculty. I'm just talking about objectively, right? How many blacks are in the faculty? And you'll find very few. I mean, if you took a pyramid, you know, who is washing all the urinals at Harvard University? Just do a racial profile and a religious profile of those people who is the professors and how many of them are? I, I ask people just to do a simple analysis of that and the data will come out on what's actually going on in this country. You know, we need to do it. But the deeper issue is what is the nature of these people and what do they control? Well, they control three things. They control media. They control the banking industry and they control, you know, as a part of media and banking, academic knowledge. You see in the Indian tradition, uh, I mean, Buddha said this, you know, I don't consider Buddha religious. He was a great wise man. He said, all suffering comes from ignorance. Right? ignorance, right? Ignorance is a source of all suffering. Well, how do you liberate yourself from suffering then? Well, you get enlightened. Well, how do you get enlightened? Well, you learn skills, you learn knowledge, you learn how the world operates. Well, well that access to that knowledge should be free. But once you control that with, with, through what's called education, and the priesthood, now what you've done is you've controlled access to your liberation or your suffering. And that's what these major universities do. you know. And I think that's what's happened. Look, in India, we call them the Brahmins, okay? You have the priesthood. And I think the same elements that people have been fighting for centuries still exist. But I think what's happening now that's different than probably 2,000 years ago, I think because of the internet, because of media, Two things are going on, J.F. We have a huge opportunity for liberation at the same time, a huge opportunity for even further darkness, you know, further subjugation.
1: So could you take me through your platform and compare it to Elizabeth Warren? What are the points that you want to make in
0: this campaign? And when is the vote? Yeah, so the vote is in November. So first of all, let me just make this clear. Elizabeth Warren is the face of the establishment. People need to get this. Elizabeth Warren is the face of the establishment, Republican and or Democrat. Uh, if we think, oh, we need to get the Democrat out and put a Republican in, this is the way that Tweedledee and Tweedledum works. Donald Trump, let's be very clear, he's not a Republican. His win, a lot of the, the one million people who voted for Donald Trump in Massachusetts and the millions across this country did not vote for Republicans, Okay, the Republicans and Democrats are the same two sides of the same devil. They voted for him and I can't read his mind. Right. We don't know his exact intention. They voted for him because he was attacking the media. He was attacking Republicans and Democrats. He was the anti-establishment candidate. Now, I have no idea of what he has to play once he's in that swamp. But Donald Trump's win was like a shot that was fired in Lexington. What we need to do is expand and and open up that anti-establishment movement. So the reason I'm saying this, it's really easy for me to attack Warren, and I, the fake Indian, real Indian, right? Uh, and I can do it better than anyone. But if we simply stop there and we don't recognize that the Republicans and Democrats are two sides, we're gonna completely give the establishment the opportunity to slime their way in. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. that's, we need to understand that. So our campaign is declare your independence. The establishment is one. And the central thesis of our campaign, philosophically, is we need decentralization. Look, you're a biologist, as I understand, JF. The yeah. uh, If you go back, look at, uh, you know, uh, the the term capitalism, right? It goes back to Adam Smith, right? Marxism, it goes back to Marx. If you ask the left or the right, where does the word fascism go? They'll sort of look at you. They don't know. Fascism goes to the counselor of Mussolini, Right. Mussolini's counselor is the one who defined fascism. And interestingly enough, he used the human body. He mistakenly thought, oh, the human body is run by a central controller, which tells all the cells what to do. You and I know systems biology tells you that's very different. The cells actually are cooperative systems. They actually work on their own and they're a self-organizing system. So th- our thing is that we need decentralization. The human body is 10 trillion cells that work in a decentralized way. So at the core of my view of the world is decentralization. That And that decentralization means that from the time you got up this morning, J.F., and the time I got up, I probably made 100 decisions. Everyone listening on here probably made 100 decisions for themselves. They didn't need the state telling them what to do. So the bottom line is we believe in you. I trust you. Elizabeth Warren and the establishment believes they know better. Right. Fundamental difference. I know you know better. You know, the body knows how to heal itself when it's fed the right foods. People actually know what is right for them. So that's the core. So the part of that core, once you get decentralization. And I think that's the way nature works. Nature is highly decentralized. It's not central command and control. In fact, what emerged out of biology, the old model, the Watson and Crick model was you have DNA central tells everything what to do. We know that's bullshit. Right. The truth is that everything occurs at the edges at the at the cell membrane, in fact. Right. The nucleus is essentially storage. So if you follow that philosophy through all the great things in life actually occur at the edges by the deplorables, by the untouchables. Right. Like email gets created in Newark, not by the center. So decentralization. So number one thing, we have three parts of our platform that emerge out of that. Three petals. Clean government, real jobs, real health. Well, clean government's only going to come if we bust up centralization and we get rid of all these career politicians. The founders of this country never wanted career politicians. You know, they were farmers, they were engineers, they were architects, they were doctors, they were scientists. None of these politicians, 99 percent of them don't even know how anything in the body functions. They don't know systems theory. They don't know anything. We should fire them all. And the way we do that is term limits. 80 percent of Americans want term limits. We need voter IDs. Why is anyone able to go vote without a voter ID? We need campaign finance reform. You shouldn't need this much money to run because 90 percent of the money goes to their their colleagues and their insider trading. And my view is two terms any office if you were mayor in a small town that's it you're done go back to get a, get a job it doesn't matter what office you're in two terms and you're done second part of our thing is real health well health is going to emerge when we take care of our bodies and as you know and i know food is the ultimate medicine right we have polluted our entire food supply we poisoned it by companies like monsanto We've destroyed it. And they BS everyone telling them, oh, we need to save again. It's a neo missionary model. We need to go save the darkies in Africa and India. You know, that's not you don't need genetically engineered foods for that. And it's a longer discussion. We can talk about that. I've done the research as a scientist. There is no safety assessment standards. The only people are going to profit from this are people like the Gates Foundation, companies like Monsanto and Syngenta. We need to protect the public food supply. And that's going to come again through local farmers, local trade, no tax. We don't the average age of a farmer in the United States is now 65 years old. We need to incent more vocational training and farming. You know, food tastes better when it's local. A fig coming from Turkey, which has been picked long before. I don't care if it's organic or not. Industrialized organic, which is what Whole Foods and Amazon are doing, does not match decentralized locally grown food. The third part of our thing is real jobs. You know, in the United States, we don't produce skilled labor anymore. We don't produce enough scientists, we don't produce enough engineers, plumbers, electricians. We need to unleash skilled labor. Look, I didn't need to go to MIT. MIT was frankly lucked out on me. You know, when I look back, my high school teachers, my mentors, I learned programming long before I came to MIT. And skills are what make people. You know, there's an old story in the Indian mythology which goes like this. The goddess of wealth, and there's a goddess of knowledge. Goddess of wealth and the goddess of knowledge. A lot of people go pray to the goddess of wealth. Well, sometimes she'll give you some money, right? Depending on how she feels. But the goddess of wealth, some people don't know, this is very jealous of the goddess of knowledge. So if you go learn a skill, you go get knowledge, automatically wealth will come. And that's what we need to train people. What we've done in this country is we've elevated these Hollywood celebrities, you know, we've elevated this priesthood of academia when we need to go back and say, what skill do you have? Do you know how to fix a lawnmower? Do you know how do you know, can you actually do anything with your life? If, if you didn't have all your prestige, what can you actually contribute? And that comes from skills. And that's where we create high paying jobs. What we've done in this country with illegal immigration sanctuary cities sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Well, the, what the liberals have actually done is that's plantations. That's a plantation of migrant workers that they use so they can keep the costs low for themselves and others. The left and the right do not want to solve the illegal immigration issue because they want slavery. That's what they're doing with illegal immigrants. They want to depress wages so we have an inflated, overinflated stock market, which is basically a fictitious market.
1: On the matter of education, I agree with you. Uh, we have a problem where everyone has, uh, well, everyone, most people in in the country have delegated the idea of raising children to the state and the state is doing a terrible job trying to fill their brain with everything, which is not needed and not efficient.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, uh, if you go back to the seventies, in my view, before the Department of Education got involved, I learned more from my public high school systems from these amazing teachers than I did at MIT. Seriously. And my high school teachers were given a lot more freedom. You know, my math teacher, he had three curriculums for the slower students, for the normal students. And then he had another curriculum, which he said, you know, you could study as hard as you want. And that's the one I did. That's allowed me to finish calculus. You see what I'm saying? The teachers need to be given power. Parents need to be given power. You know, that's where you create good people. You know, we need more mentors. That's what we need. Not this concept of the state. Right. What do a bunch of politicians know about education when 90 percent of them are uneducated? And what they learn how to do is manipulate people, cheat and lie. It's completely nonsense. We need to blow up the Department of Education. It's unnecessary. We don't need it. It has done nothing. And the teachers need to be given more power. Parents need to be given more power.
1: Uh, on the question of GMOs, uh, you, you've spoken against GMO here, but you, you were involved to some extent in the GMO industry as part of the safety uh, understanding the safety of potential GMOs. Is that correct? And can you describe yeah, your role? Yes.
0: So So look, I so what happened was between 2003 and seven. As I mentioned to you, when I came back to MIT, this was for my PhD. I created a technology which allows us to understand mathematically. It's not perfect, but it allows us to look at any field and understand the molecular reactions. To put it simply, you know, any biological phenomenon, you can think about it as like a big furnace of reactions. And so we created this technology to understand at the molecular level what was going on. That's cytosol 2003 to seven. During seven to 12, I published a lot of papers using cytosol in uh you know major journals that you know are considered the prestigious journals to validate it in 2014 one day i was walking down mit's hallway and i saw this uh, art, uh front page of what's called technology review i've been on the front page of that um and this article was it said buy fresh buy gmos okay and you got to understand that slogan is actually a slogan of the local food movement which is buy fresh buy local so I looked at this article and I said, what the hell's going on? And as I read the article, it was basically a propaganda campaign for Monsanto and the Gates Foundation saying that the poor Africans and the poor Indians. Right. Sound familiar? The old neo missionary model need GMOs without them. They're all going to starve and die, which, by the way, is complete nonsense. So based on that, they say we need genetically engineered foods. All right. So I said, hey, why don't I use my technology to really understand genetically engineered foods. So, put it simply, JF, if you and I wanted to create a genetically engineered blueberry today and put it out to the market, what a lot of people don't know is there are no safety assessment standards. So you and I can create a genetically engineered blueberry and let's say there's the organic blueberry. Well, how do we get it out to the market? Well, we, you and I simply have to show that the genetically engineered blueberry and the non-genetically the organic one are e- equivalent it's called substantially equivalent and the guideline that's used is a guideline that was created for medical devices in 1976. so the guideline says you and i get to choose self-reporting whatever criteria we want and we simply have to show they're equal plus or minus minus 20 percent in fact we don't even have to show anyone we just simply have to say we did some research so we can choose water content the color of the blueberry and how much protein it has. Okay? Three variables. Now, that may have nothing to do with fundamentally showing the difference. Meaning, if you take a male and a female, and I I told you, hey, choose whatever criteria you wanted to show that the male and the female are the same. Well, you could choose, oh, do they have hair or not? Do they have two legs or not? Right? Do they have two eyes? And you say, oh, yeah, they're the same. But the substantial difference is the XY chromosome. Right? So, what I said was, let us really analyze the particular. We looked at soy, genetically engineered soy, and organic soy. The reason we chose soy is 97% of the soy in the United States is genetically engineered. So we literally mathematically modeled the molecular pathways of metabolism in plants. And what we discovered was in the genetically engineered soy versus the organic soy, in the genetically engineered soy, you would have 250% less of a very, very important critical chemical called glutathione, which you may know is a master antioxidant. Glutathione Mm. is like a detergent. Um, Formaldehyde is produced, which is a carcinogen in the plant cell, and it's detoxified in normal conditions. But in the genetically engineered soy, we found out it would be 250% less. In fact, we wrote a series of four papers. We were attacked by a completely corrupt academic called Kevin Folta, who said, oh, I'm an independent academic. I don't get paid by Monsanto. A FOIA was done on Freedom of Information Act. He got paid $250,000 by Monsanto to be their spokesman. He was attacking me. By the way, he didn't attack me scientifically for publishing my foreign papers. He said, this guy's a fraud. He didn't invent email, okay? Uh, Anyway, we since then did another piece of research, our fifth paper. We found a paper that was published in London where people grew the soy plant In the greenhouse, in vivo, and they found the same data: two hundred and fifty percent less glutathione in the. So your prediction
1: was confirmed experimentally.
0: Exactly. Not only that, but we know why. You see. So what we're trying to say is, it's not pro or anti GMO. It's like X rays, right? It took many, many years for people to realize you needed shielding before you used X rays. So what we're saying is, if you're going to go make a little itsy weeny teeny weeny change to something that nature has developed. It's a very fragile system. And you're saying, oh, don't worry, it's no big deal. Well, you're completely out of your mind. Engineers know this. If you build an airplane and you suddenly say, ah, oh, let me just change a propeller propeller length to be a little bit bigger, you're gonna get vibrations. It could blow up the airplane. So these people are lying to people. So what we found out was because of the genetic engineering, the soy plant is actually weaker because it has less glutathione. Now, interestingly enough, I don't know if people know this, um, if you look at it, most genetically engineered seeds, they've started coating them with another toxin called a neonicotinoid, okay? And the, and the reason I think they've done this is when they plant the genetically engineered seed like in the, in, the, uh, in, in the soil, the soil organisms can destroy it because it's frankly a weaker seed. So now they've coated it with neonics and the neonics get into the plant and those are affecting the bees. Now this is not a conspiracy theory. We are willing. We publish all of our data. We're willing to show all of our data online. If Monsanto wants to uh, give us their papers, we'll embed it and we'll rerun the models. The bottom line is there is no safety assessment standards for genetically engineered foods. It's all self-reporting. It's not like the FDA approves any of this. The FDA, in fact, just issues what's called a safety consultation letter. So for the blueberry you and I would want to do, JF, we simply tell them, hey, FDA, we've done some work. And they say, oh, thank you, JF and Shiva for letting us know you've done it. So the whole thing is bogus. Uh, I just recently was in a movie with Pierce Brosnan, funded, he's the executive producer and his wife, who's an amazing documentary filmmaker. I ended up being the uh, chief scientist. Uh, Keely Brosnan says, Shiva, you're really the star of the movie, which which I I thank very humbly. But the movie really is about exposing What what is going on in the western part of the island of Kauai, which since the World War II, I mean, Vietnam War has been used as an open field uh, test center where they've destroyed the native Hawaiians. You know, they get all sorts. By the way, Zuckerberg has bought a nice piece of property there and he stole a lot of land from the Hawaiians. Right. And he's built a nice wall, by the way, around his home. So.
1: All right. Well, it was great hearing you. I will be moving to two other guests. So it was really a pleasure. I think we can continue this discussion in the future and the audience will be following your campaign in November. On the question of GMOs, uh, I'm personally very worried, perhaps as a last thought, uh, I'm very worried that humans will start editing the gene line, the 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 germ cell line of human beings to improve themselves and my book the revolutionary phenotype seeks to describe what are the potential consequences of this which is extremely grave so just before you go what do you think about the potential uh, gmo humans
0: well here's the deal right you're talking about people who are completely have no knowledge of engineering they lack the depth to understand nature Uh, has tested many things over billions and billions and billions and billions of years, right? So people who think they're going to go engineer a better human being are completely idiots. Um, They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't have an engineering sensibility. And I would argue that these people are probably maniacs. And uh, we probably should even be, uh, it should be seen as a criminal behavior, right? Just as as though we would see it as a criminal behavior if you suddenly started saying that you're going to simply change, you know, a Boeing 747 jet structure and just put it out to the market overnight. You know, we would all say no to that. Right. This is one of the most serious engineer. And now I'm an engineer. Biologists are not engineers. They don't understand engineering. Computer scientists don't un- understand engineering. Nature is an engineer. So I think it's a very dangerous thing. And we need to stop these people. The Chinese will probably try to subvert it and do it some way. They're probably already doing it right because there's no containment of them because they have a centralized planning model. At least in the United States, we may have some chance to do that. But I think it's absolutely dangerous and uh, completely inane to do this. By the way, our campaign, if people want to help us, is um, shivaforsenate.com. Support us. As you can see, uh, as I've said before, only a real Indian can defeat a fake Indian. And we mean that at many, many levels. Intellectually, you know, from not only a slogan, but at a fundamental level, it's time that people got better. Thank you.
1: All right, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure, and we can talk later. Thanks for
0: having us. Thank you. Bye-bye.